Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Father, it is such a delight for me to be here with my brothers and sisters at Southeastern. It's a delight for me to have the opportunity to unfold God's word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would descend in fire and in power in our hearts. Lord, give us a sense, uh, a powerful sense through the ministry of the word, through the activity of the, of the Holy Spirit, the glory that is waiting for all of us in the future. Father, I pray that you would give me an anointing and the ability to articulate from the word of God powerfully and clearly what is the nature of Christian hope. Father, strengthen all of us in our meditations and may my words be helpful to feed those meditations with truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a number of years ago, I was reading Randy Alcorn's book uh, on heaven, and I found it to be electrifying. It was strengthening, and it exploded in my mind the idea of a static, boring heaven. Early in that book, he talks about some research he did among Christians and pastors and, and some people that confessed that they actually weren't looking forward to heaven. They were afraid that it was going to be dull. They pictured themselves sitting on a cloud forever strumming a harp. And that wasn't appealing, obviously. Of course, people that present such a view don't think it through. Why would God give you such a spectacularly powerful, glorious resurrection body and then tell you to sit on a fluffy cloud and strum a harp? makes no sense at all, but that's, the, that's what Satan has done. And, and so Alcorn's book um, just kind of exploded that, and, and, and it was filling my mind. And uh, my family went on vacation to a mountain home, uh, a simple mountain home of some dear Christian people, both of whom have gone on to be with the Lord, Mac and Eileen Woody. And they're out in the western part of the state. It was just a simple home, uh, but in a very beautiful location. And I'll never forget, just I was thinking about heaven, about the new heaven, new earth, uh, about what that was going to be like. And I was walking with my family down uh, this beautiful country road. It was the fall. We take generally fall vacation. It was autumn. And I was just standing there, and there was just this vista in front of me. And it was a, it was a beautiful little uh, farm with a barn and with some uh, animals and some grass. And then it was framed by spectacular flaming foliage, the reds and the oranges and, and, and the yellows, and it was just on fire and beautiful. And beyond that, Smoky Mountains, and uh, I just stood there, drinking it in. And my daughter came up to me, Carolyn, and she was looking at my face, and there were tears coming down my face. And she said, what are you doing? And I just looked at her, and then I looked back over that view, and I said, I'm hoping. I'm filled with hope. I I was saturated through the Holy Spirit, through the meditations I've been doing, through Alcorn's book, through scriptures, in the world that is going to come. And it was so real to me at that moment, that biblical hope, I could almost taste it, this strong feeling. So... Christian hope, what is that? It's a a strong assurance that the future is bright based on the promise of God. 
And that's what I want to talk to you about today as preachers of the word. One of our responsibilities is to continually renew within the hearts of our hearers biblical hope. The last time I advocated that a central duty is to be feeding the faith of the people of God. I reminded you that our salvation is not finished yet. It's a process justification, sanctification, glorification. So not one of the people that we will ever preach to is done being saved. And that this is like a marathon race the author gives us in chapter 12, a race to be run, and it's a, a race of faith, Hebrews 12, a race of faith that we have to run to the end, and that faith needs to be fed. And so when Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, that really is a word to all of the under-shepherds, who are given a responsibility to feed the flock with the ministry of the Word of God. They are to feed the faith of the people of God. Now, last time I gave a, a definition or an idea of faith as the eyesight of the soul, the eyesight of the soul, by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. I showed you biblically that faith is very much like eyesight. It enables us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who Peter tells us we've never seen. Though you have not seen him, you love him. But we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How do we do that? By faith. It enables us, as we saw in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven, to see him who is invisible. The eyesight of faith comes initially into the soul by the ministry of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. But it is also developed and fed and strengthened by hearing the word as well. So now this morning, I want to zero in on a subset of that, perhaps, you know, a subset of ministering to faith is hope. Remember that faith is, is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And so faith that sees the glorious good things that are coming to us in the future is biblically called hope. So past, by past things, uh, I mean all of the things that God has done in the past from creation by the word of the Lord where the heavens made and the earth was formed by the word of his power and by faith we understand the universe was formed at the word of God. So by faith we can see creation and then the call of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those events of the Old Testament, we can see them by faith and know that they happen, but primarily the, the incarnation, the life, the miraculous life, sinless life, the atoning death, and the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven, we can see all of those past events by faith. Present, we can see, the author tells us in Hebrews, Christ seated at the right hand of God in glory. We can see that with the mind's eye. We can see the throne of God of Almighty God, like John was, uh, you know, lifted up off of, off of Patmos and went through a doorway into the heavenly realms, and there he saw a throne with someone seated on it. We can see that by faith. We can see invisible spiritual realities now by faith. And we can see angels, the activity of angels, who are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. We are aware of the activity of demons, 
and all these invisible things. And we can see disembodied spirits who are absent from the body, present with the Lord, saints who have gone on before us and who are in the heavenly Zion worshiping God. We can see all of these present spiritual realities, but only by faith. But then there's the future. And by faith, we can look ahead to the future and seeing the good things that are coming to us in the future is what I call hope. So what is hope? It is a frame of spirit, a frame of spirit, and an attitude or demeanor of the heart that gives us a, an assurance, a strong assurance that the future is bright. So hope always has to do with future things, and it always has to do with good things. Now, non-Christian hope is worldly. Like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend, that kind of thing. I remember, you know, for years I was a, I was a Red Sox fan, still am, kind of. Um, but, you know, back then, uh, it, it was agony to be a Red Sox fan. And I remember one of the sports magazines talked about Red Sox fans saying, and, and the ar article was entitled about Red Sox fans, hoping for the best, expecting the worst. So there, you're, you know, your hopes and your expectancies are pitted against each other. That's worldly hope. So worldly hope has to do with worldly things that are not in any way guaranteed. And some people are hopeful because they're just optimistic people, talking about non-Christians, like Pollyanna, just thinking things are going to work out just fine. They have no evidence for it, but that's just the way they think. Others are hopeless in that regard, like Eeyore. You've known Eeyore people. You know what I'm talking about. You don't want to be around people like that, but they're gloomy and depressed and negative. But it's the same thing. That's worldly hope or hopelessness. But Christian hope is based on the promises of God. It's guaranteed, absolutely guaranteed, and it has to do with blessings that come in the future. Now, for me, as I think about, about hope, I, I extend it out in terms of, of time frame. So I, I work out to eternity. There's eternal hope. It has to do with life after death, what happens when we die. Then there's long-range hope, which goes from now until the day we die or, the, or, or Christ returns. You know, from now, our lives in this world, from here to the end. And then there's short-range hope, which just has to do with very short-term, the rest of this day, the rest of this week, things that are going. We Christians have hope for all of those things. All of them. We have an eternal hope. We know that when we die, we're going to spend eternity with God. And we have long-range hope. We really believe that the rest of our lives are worth living. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to be blessed by God. We're going to be protected. Christ is going to filter our temptations. He's not going to let anything uh, come to us that we cannot handle. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. He will never leave us or forsake us. He, the rest of our lives are going to be fruitful and well worth living. And then short-term hope as well, that today is worth living, I've got good works I can do today, etc. But non-Christians, we're told in Ephesians 2.12, are without hope and without God in the world. So we're surrounded every day by hopeless people. People who are lost, they have no eternal hope. Their long-range hopes are uncertain, they may never happen, and so they're really kind of living for the weekend. And even that, they can't guarantee will go the way they want. So for us, as we look at what's going on in our world today, we can see all kinds of assaults on hope. Uh, we think about COVID-19, uh, which we're now on into, the, into past 20 and on into 21 now, still going on. It's a worldwide blight on people's lifestyles, on, on the effect, and then in some cases, 
uh, far worse than that. There's been an, a severe economic cost because of the pandemic. Uh, many small businesses shut down. People have lost their jobs. There's been an economic effect. Um, college students have a very stripped-down experience. Um, my son's in college right now. Just, there's just less going on. There's all, all kinds of rich experiences that go on in college and friendships and sports and, and hobbies and, and Christian activities, Bible studies, missions, uh, all kinds of good things that you do, and they're just not happening, not, not like normal, happening in some ways virtually. But then elderly people are very isolated. They've, they've self-quarantined. They've isolated themselves. They're not able to see their grandkids. They're not able to go to church and do the things that they want to do. Uh, singles have a hard time meeting people. Uh, they, they wonder how they're going to, you know, make a connection, be able to find, find somebody that, that might be a, a spouse for them. Uh, schools, elementary schools, public schools have gone, have gone virtual. And, and so the pipeline of education, these kids are having a truncated educational experience. And, and we don't know how much longer it's going to last, and so it's been an assault on, on hope. Then there's the political situation, which I'm not going to go into, but obviously the, the election and political process have been very divisive. And there's all kinds of rage everywhere. There's been riots uh, from people of very different uh, governmental perspectives or political perspectives. There's been all kinds of rage going on. For us as Christians, as we look ahead to the future of our country, you know, we're pro-life, we believe in sanctity of human life, and we see that the federal government is being led by people who don't share those convictions, actually quite the opposite. And so a lot of people are, are just wondering where we're heading in our country. So there's all kinds of issues. So you look at these are assaults on hope. So I feel like as a pastor, I get, to, I get to minister hope to people. I get to be able to say, look away from all of that and look at what God has promised in his word that cannot be taken from you. These are guaranteed things which God who is faithful has put his omnipotence behind making certain that they will happen. So now I want to zero in for the time that we have in the book of Hebrews as I did last time because it's so powerful. I said last time the book of Hebrews is an epistle of warning, and so it is. These were Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, but they were under severe pressure from unbelieving Jews um, to forsake Christ and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And so the author is writing uh, a very strong warning to them. The issue is apostasy, of denying Christ. And so he warns them in chapter 2, verse 1, about the danger of drifting away. And then in chapter 3, he warns them about the danger of turning away through a sinful, unbelieving heart. And then in, in Hebrews 6, 6, of the danger of falling away. This is the language of apostasy. And so it culminates in a terrifying warning, one of the most terrifying warnings in all the Bible, Hebrews 10, 27, nothing is left for people who forsake Christ except a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There are no more dreadful words in the entire Bible. So it is certainly an epistle of warning. His remedy is to show them, through the ministry of the word, the glories of Christ and of the new covenant and of the life of faith. And so I gave you kind of a three-part kind of outline to the book of Hebrews last time that a superior mediator, Jesus, gives us a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life, a life of faith that is so fruitful for the glory of God. That's 
kind of the whole book of Hebrews. And so he begins by presenting the glories of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, who sustains all things by his powerful word. He gives all of this, and he does it, I believe, in the service of hope. He wants them, in the midst of their persecutions, in the midst of their sufferings and trials, to be buoyant with hope, to be obvious, evidently filled with hope. And so he points to their own past experience. Look at Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. They're in the middle of suffering. Some of their number had been arrested for being Christians. They were in prison for their faith. And others who, were not, who had not been arrested were courageously ministering to those that were in prison, bringing them food and, and bringing them medical attention or whatever they needed, and thus risking guilt by association, being arrested along with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he talks about that. He says, remember. So look at Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. That's very powerful on the issue of hope. He wants them to understand how they were back in those days, these Hebrew Christians. They were earlier very amazing in their courage for Christ. Think about this. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Why? Because they knew that that would be rewarded, that they would get a heavenly reward. They knew they had a better and lasting possession. Friends, that is heavenly hope. And so hope in heaven is a powerful force in world evangelization. It gives witnesses the courage to stand firm in persecution and give their persecutors a vision of fearlessness of people who are not afraid to lose in this world, not afraid to die in this world. They have a better and eternal hope that these people, the persecutors, don't have. And that's how the blood of martyrs, as Tertullian said, is seed for the church, when people are that kind of buoyant and confident in their Christian hope. So that's what he's talking about. He's saying you need to renew your hope in heaven so that you can stand courageously still. You still have a journey to travel. You're not done yet. You still have a race to run. And so we saw last time this definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, which follows shortly after those words I just read. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So I'm only going to do half of this verse today, the first half. Second half is fascinating, but we'll zero in on the first half. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The Greek is hypostasis. The Latin brings it almost literalistically over in the KJV. Uh, the substance uh, is what it said, that which stands under the things hoped for. So like a buttress 
like a pillar system, a structural support system for your hope. That's what faith does. It makes it real. It holds it up. You can picture Moses interceding for Joshua and the army while they were fighting the Amalekites, remember, and how his arms would get tired and sag down, and how Aaron and, and Hur would stand next to him and lift, lift and, and hold his arms up. So the author of Hebrews gives a sense of strengthening the weak arms and the feeble knees, that kind of thing. There's a sense of faith that buttresses and strengthens our sense of the things hoped for. So by faith, we have, it's almost like we can touch it, like it becomes tangible, the things that are coming to us, the good things that are coming to us, faith makes it very real for us, the assurance of things hoped for we have. And that's powerful. Now in Hebrews, there are two other key texts on hope. Look back at Hebrews 6 and 19, where it says there that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, an anchor. It's a powerful image, an anchor. Look at the whole context there, Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Now, I could spend a lot of time on these words, but I think the backdrop here is Genesis 15, when Abraham asked God, how can I know that I will receive the land? How do I know I'm going to get the land? It doesn't look good. I've got no son. Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. In other words, it's not looking good. God, I don't understand it. So God then brings about a covenant-cutting ceremony in Genesis 15 where he has him lay out some animals and to set apart the pieces of the animal in a path that the ancients would, the, the two individuals are making a covenant together, let's say two kings, would walk together between the, the pieces of the sacrifice of the animal, uh, and, and that was a covenant-cutting ceremony. And the image was, May what just what happened to those animals happen to me if I break this covenant. That's the image from Genesis 15. And so then at the right time, a fire pot appears representing the invisible, the eternal, almighty God. And he doesn't walk through it with Abraham. He goes through it alone. And the fire pot just moves right through those pieces, effectively saying... May I cease to exist if you don't get this promise, the promised land. So you go back to the earlier part in the chapter, how did this whole thing come about? It's an issue of assurance. It's an issue of hope, of confidence. How do I know I'm going to get what you have promised me? So then he intensifies, and he does the covenant, and then later he swears by himself, he swears an oath that it'll happen. It is by these unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. Then he brings us into it as Christians. He, he says, by the, that same way, we, we Christians who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. You're like, why does it matter whether I'm greatly encouraged or not? Oh, it makes a huge difference. 
If you don't have a buoyant hope, you won't do much for Christ in this world. You won't stand firm in temptation against lusts and sins. You won't be bold in your witness as an evangelist or a missionary. You need a buoyant hope in order to be fruitful. And the author says, because of this sense of certitude of the word of God, of the promises of God, the character of God, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. So we're not going to drift away like Hebrews 2.1. We're going to be bound to God in the, in the inner sanctuary, who, in the inner curtain where Jesus, our great high priest, went in with the anchor to hold us to God, to his character, and to his promises. So that's hope, Hebrews 6.19. And our hope is better than Abraham's hope because Hebrews 8.6 says it's founded on better promises. We have better promises than we're ever in the old covenant. Better promises. Therefore, we should have a better hope. All right, so that's Hebrews 6.19. You also see it in Hebrews 10.23. So look at Hebrews 10.23. There's a bunch of exhortations. Since we have a great high priest, let us, let us, let us. One of them is Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast, same image really, like an anchor. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, no flickering, no being tossed back and forth by the waves, rock-solid confidence. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. It has to do with the character of God. And so therefore, we can be absolutely confident in our hope. Let us hold fast to that. I love that image of holding fast to hope. And the the holding fast is something we must do by faith. It's a sense of assurance, of confidence, that, that Almighty God has made us some promises, and there's no creature in heaven or earth or under the earth that is powerful enough to break God's commitment, His omnipotent commitment to fulfill His promise. And so we should have this vigorous holding fast. So I have this image of holding fast. It comes from a movie, uh, Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. It's a great movie set in the Napoleonic era. Russell Crowe is in it. It's, it's, it's in the era of, of sailing vessels when there were these great masted ships with, with rigging, with ropes that would connect the sails to the masts and the, the rigging. And sailors needed to climb those things And some of them would soar, I don't know, 150 feet or more above the deck. Imagine climbing up the rigging in a storm to to untangle a sail or something like that. And and the, the waves are just heaving down below and the ship is heaving and all that. And all you've got are your your two hands holding fast to the rope. And there was an old salt, an old sailor in this movie. Um, with a leathery kind of face and long white hair. And he had tattooed the letters H-O-L-D on one set of four fingers, not the thumb, but the four fingers, F-A-S-T on the other, hold fast. And he would say that to the younger sailors, you better hold fast. Well, it's kind of obvious why. When you're halfway up the rigging and the ship's moving all around and the seething waves down below and they're they're down in like close to Antarctic waters and all that sort of stuff. You better hold fast to the rope. Well, that's a life-death image. I'm talking about eternal life and eternal death. We got to hold fast to our hope. That's what Hebrews 10.23 is saying. Why? Because he who promises faithful. Because God is faithful. We're going to hold fast by faith. 
Now, in all of this, we need to understand the promise is not yet fulfilled. The best promises are yet to come for all of us as Christians. And that will be to the day you die. Or if we're that mysterious final generation, the day Jesus returns. The best promises are as yet unfulfilled. So look down at Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, essential to the author's appeal to these suffering Christians that they will, if God wills, they will die not having received the promises. So he wants them to die well, to die confidently. And he cites as the example, the great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, the patriarchs and those of that era, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mentioned Sarah. And so you look at Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There is a world yet to come. There is a country yet to come. There is a city yet to come. And all of these heroes of the faith died not having gotten those things yet. The patriarchs died not having received the promise. There's a whole chapter about Abraham having to dicker with the Hittites to buy a cave to bury his wife. It's a long chapter about the dickering. And the point is that he hasn't received the promise yet. He's not come into his inheritance. So he had to pay money to the real owners of the cave. And then he himself, Sarah was buried there, then he himself was buried in that cave. They died not having received the promise. They're looking forward to a better country, a heavenly one, and to an eternal city. This is none other than the new heaven and new earth that the author told us that Jesus himself will bring about. In Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, God says to God the Father, says to God the Son, in the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. The eternality of Christ So the present heavens and earth are going to be rolled up and transformed in some powerful way. And so we are talking about a hope for heaven. That we're going to die not having received what we really have been promised through the gospel. And that's the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And it is vital for us as preachers to feed the minds and hearts of our hearers with those hopes to feed them with the word of God, to feed them with a vision of what the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem will look like. This isn't some kind of guilty pleasure. It's like, yeah, I don't want to do too much thinking about heaven. You can't do too much thinking about heaven. You, all of you, and I, do too little thinking about heaven. In in Colossians 3, we're told to set our minds on things above and our hearts on things to come, not on earthly things. And he immediately goes from that to putting sin to death, holiness, personal holiness, and then all the duties of the Christian life flow from heavenly mindedness. 
Hope feeds missions. It feeds evangelists. What do you think William Carey had in mind when he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God? Some of those great things were earthly. All the best ones were eternal. And he wanted great things for the Indian people, the people he was going to minister to. That's why he went as a missionary. So this kind of buoyant, radiant, confident hope characterized William Carey's life. Gives us boldness in evangelism. And when you have that kind of buoyant hope in the midst of any and every circumstance, cancer diagnosis, a, a sick or dying or even dead child, and you have, you grieve, but not like those who have no hope. You grieve with a, with, with a Christian confidence in resurrection. And when you, have, when you have that kind of buoyant, confident hope in the midst of suffering, where, where God has put you on a pedestal of suffering, of, a, of, a, of an illness, a chronic illness, or a tragedy, or a natural disaster, that non-Christians are going through those things too, but you're going through them filled with hope, evidently filled with hope, that God has lit you like a lamp, and you are the light of the world, and he's put you up on a lampstand so everyone can see, so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. All of these things are, are, are hope. And so when you are buoyant and confident with hope, it may be that some people who are hopeless, who are without hope and without God in the world, will ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have, 1 Peter 3.15. But if you're just like Eeyore, mopey, and walking through it just like any other pagan would, nobody's going to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. So it's because you talk about heaven. You talk about resurrection. You talk about Jesus. You talk about your faith. You're so buoyant and filled with hope. I think preachers should feed that in their people so that they, they're just buoyant and radiant with hope throughout the week. That's what we're talking about. So for me, I think essential to this is having a right and a biblical view of heaven itself. And so that's why I spent five years meditating on and, and thinking about and writing a book on heaven. And I, I'm, I'm excited about it, and foundational to it is the idea of a dynamic heaven. But when you ask, if you were to say, Pastor, what do you think heaven is all about? I will say, fundamentally, heaven is about the glory of God. Heaven is about the glory of God. You get this in Revelation 21. Turn there if you would. In Revelation 21, the, there John gives us this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's what's going to come. And then later in that same chapter, verse 9 through 11, one of the seven angels said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. 
A couple verses later, verse 22 through 24, it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the light of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp and the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So heaven is all about the glory of God. Heaven, in some mysterious way, is translucent. There's transparent gold. And all of the radiant gems capture and refract into certain colors the glory of God. But everywhere you look is the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? What is the glory of God? How do we understand that? Well, we need to understand that for the countless multitude of redeemed, heaven will be an eternal education in the glories of God. The redeemed will be drinking from an endless river of God's glory. We'll be eating from a delightful tree of his glory. We're going to tour a vast museum of his glory. We're going to view a visionary theater of his glory. We're going to explore a limitless universe illuminated by his glory. We're going to bow down before the throne of his glory, and we're going to stare unblinking and unblinded at the face of his glory. And the more we meditate on this, the more fruitful we're going to be. But what does it mean? What is the glory of God? I think this is a good definition. It's the radiant display of the attributes of God. The radiant display of the perfections of the attributes of God. What are the attributes? Well, it, they answer the question, what is God like? So theologians give us attribute lists like self-existence, perfection, holiness, love, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, justice, mercy, patience, wrath, among others. Radiant display means these different perfections are put on display to our minds so that we esteem them and are delighted by them and moved by them. And we return thanks and praise to God for that radiant display. So my premise here is not of a static experience of God's glory, but a dynamic one. It's not going to be boring. We're not spending eternity on a fluffy white cloud strumming a harp and wishing we brought a magazine. We are going to be educated in God's glory and then return it back to him again and again in praise. Now, what do I mean by educated? It means there will be things, even when you are perfected, even when you are glorified, that you don't know about God. Think about the alternative. Suppose it's not true. No, I'll come to a point, Pastor, where I will know everything there is to know about God. Stop right there, dear friends. You will never be omniscient. You understand, you can be perfect and redeemed and glorified and not God. You can be like God, but you will never be omniscient. Only an infinite subject can engage our attention for an infinite duration of time, and that infinite subject is God. And that whole duration, you'll have more to learn, more to learn, more to learn, more to learn. And God will be your teacher, and he will be showing you his glory. Now, I think that that glory, when we're in heaven, now stay with me, this is not easy to track on the time aspect, but now let's imagine we're there. All of us, all the redeemed are there. We're in our resurrection bodies. Judgment day is behind us now. We're there in the new, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. We're there. In that 
situation, our experience of God's glory will be in three categories. God's past glories, God's present glory at, the, at that time, and then God's yet future glory in heaven. So God's present glories I've already been describing to you. They're described in Revelation 21 and 22, that radiant display of God with him on his throne, 100 million angels surrounding him to serve him. The redeemed from every tribe, language, people, and nation standing around the throne in white robes, celebrating, looking at the face of God. And we will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. All of these things. That's the present glory of God. The Bible says almost nothing about the future glories of God in heaven. But here's what I think. I've already hinted at it, but God is going to give you a powerful, glorious, spiritual, eternal, immortal resurrection body. You are going to have staggering levels of capability. Why would he then give you nothing to do? There are indications in Scripture of different functions and different works that people do and the glories of God rolling in or glories of the nations rolling into the New Jerusalem. I'm not getting into all that. The Bible says very little about it, but I'm excited about it. I can't wait to explore the new heaven, new earth, like Lewis and Clark or something like that. Just find out what God made. It's going to be awesome. And then we'll have works to do. So that'll be exciting. My book is about the first category, God's past glory, 6,000 years of redemptive history. Any chance there's stuff you don't know about those 6,000 years? Any chance that God has done some things in those 6,000 years that you'll be excited to find out about, excited to learn? Now, Revelation 7, 9 and 10, I, my guess is you've heard these verses from time to time here at this mission-saturated seminary, which is so awesome. I'll read them again. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and lang language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beautiful vision of the completion of the Great Commission. It's going to be successful. There will be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's awesome. But if you look a few verses later, there's an interesting question. One of the elders, this is uh, Revelation 7, 13, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Stop right there. Interesting questions. Who are they? Well, they are a multitude greater than anyone could count. Are you asking me to give their testimonies? Yes and more. What were their lives like? How did God save them? How did God protect them? How did he use them in their lives? Are you interested in those stories? Well, what, no matter what you tell me this Thursday morning, and I know it's early, but no matter what you tell me this Thursday morning, in heaven you will have resurrected minds that will be energetic. You'll be set free at last from you, and that's going to be so sweet for all of us. We won't care about me anymore, and we will be all about what God did, the glory of God in this brother, in this sister, in this era of history, what he did in those 6,000 years. And not just sacred history, but secular history, God ruled it all. Everything he did to orchestrate his purposes. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, the only reason you're thinking this is because you're a history geek. Your PhD is in history. I'm into other things. So, like, you'll be into this, friends. 
Because it says in Psalm 111, verses 2 through 4, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Psalm 111, verse 4 says, he has caused his wonders to be remembered forever. Psalm 111, 2 through 4, check it out. But I think we're not going to, it's not like in heaven they're celebrating the Red Sea crossing and all the things that God did. But when we get to the eternal state, we'll forget all that. We won't think about it anymore. People struggle with this. They're like, I don't know that what you're saying is true. I don't want to remember the past. There are some things that happen I would just as soon forget. And there are some verses that imply that God forgets and that, you know, we're going to forget what lies behind and all that. I address all of those things in my book. But do you really want a memory wipe when you get to heaven? Like, I don't know, like the smartphone, like if you're going to sell your smartphone, you want to get all your personal information off the phone, right? And there are ways to do it, ways to wipe your smartphone. Imagine if we all get a memory wipe. You now longer, you no, you no longer have any identity. <laughs> but Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, imagine that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob get a memory wipe. And you get a memory wipe. And you get to sit next to Abraham in the kingdom of heaven and feast with him. But you don't know who he is and he doesn't know who you are and neither of you knows who you were. And it's just, hi, I'm Abraham. Hi, I'm Joe. Let's eat. That's not what Jesus meant when he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They are still alive now. I am Abraham's God right now. And he is Abraham right now. So we're not going to get that memory wipe. It's not something that we would even want And I have 15 biblical proofs that we will not forget the past when we get to heaven. I won't burden you with them, but just consider this. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So everything Jesus said, we will remember for all eternity. But not just his words, also his wounds and his works. Jesus is the lamb looking as if it had been slain. We're going to remember that he died on the cross and worship him in heaven. Revelation 5 talks about it. He's the lamb looking as if it had been slain. And then what about all of Jesus' works? John hints in John 21 that if all of them were written down, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books that would be written. But I imagine that all of Jesus' works, all of them will be revealed in heaven and we'll be able to celebrate his works. Ephesians 2.7 says that in the coming ages, that's heaven, we will, God will show us the magnitude of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We've got an education in grace yet to come. All of us underestimate how gracious God has been to us. But we're going to spend eternity celebrating God's grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we are going to be far more educated in the grace of God at the end of those 10,000 years than when we first begun. And John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, How can he give thanks to God unless he remembers that he once was blind but now sees, that he once was a wretch but now is redeemed? And so how beautiful will that be? Now, one of the central in the couple minutes that I have left, I want to zero in on one of the main ways that I know that we'll remember the past, and that's the theology of rewards. And rewards are huge in the book of Hebrews. Rewards. What what are rewards but an eternal connection to an earthly act? 
Jesus said, if you give even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, you will never lose your reward. But why would the connection between the cup of cold water and the reward be severed? It's like a Congressional Medal of Honor with no citation, no story. Imagine seeing a soldier wearing a Congressional Medal of Honor and you say, oh, it's incredible, what did you do? I have no idea. Or even worse, I bought it at a pawn shop. If it's severed from the achievement, there's no honor in it. If there's no story, there's no glory. And so the, the, the rewards are all about what people did. Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Well, what will the reward be? It, it will be for being persecuted for Christ's name on earth. That's what the rewards are. And so fundamentally, the author to Hebrews tells us we must believe in rewards. Hebrews 11.6 it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe, number one, that he exists, and number two, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. We must believe in rewards. It's not optional. Rewards motivated Moses to turn his back on a life of sinful pleasure in Egypt and go out and bear reproach for the sake of Christ because it says he was looking ahead to his reward. Hebrews 11.26. It had, as I've already shown you, motivated these same Hebrew Christians earlier. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew that they had a better and lasting possession. They knew they were going to get rewarded for being persecuted. But then he goes on. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. It's, it's unashamed theology of rewards for the things we do here on earth. And what is the reward? It's not just a crown. It's not a medal hung around your neck. It's more of God. That's what it is. That's what you get. A unique portion of God in heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. You get commended by God personally. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. You get heavenly responsibilities. Enter into the joy of your master. You get to find out what your heavenly father thought about your prayer life, or your putting sin to death, or your evangelism, or giving money to the poor and needy. He'll draw you in and tell you how pleased he was with that action in heaven. And therefore, Jesus said, you ought to store up as much of that treasure as you possibly can in your life. Store up treasure in heaven. So for me, I feel like as a preacher, I want to preach for hope. I want my people to be buoyant and confident that today, by how they act today, by personal holiness, by evangelism, by financial generosity, by all of these things, they can store up treasure in heaven. And when they get to heaven, they'll be able to swim in the sea of the glory of God and specifically in a relationship with their heavenly Father over the way they live their lives. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the brief time that we've had to meditate on this rich topic of preaching for hope. Father, I pray that you would prepare us, each of us, for the good works you have for us to do. I pray for my brothers and sisters that have heard me here today, that you would get them ready even today to be so confident and filled with hope that they're ready to do the good works you have prepared for them to do today. Lord, help us to be openly confident of eternal life in a world that's really struggling right now and feels hopeless. 
Lord, help us to be radiant with this hope that I've preached about today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.